I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be at verses 11 through 15. For all you people that have been asking me for years to preach on Revelation, this is it. I'm going to do all five of these verses. Okay? Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Yikes. The word of God, brothers and sisters. I was on my way to breakfast yesterday morning. It was early. Uh, those of you folks know where we live. We live down uh, 605 uh, over near Broad Run Church. And coming out of our, our uh, subdivision on the 605, and let me, let me just give you this context. I have a Volkswagen diesel station wagon, which translates to fantastic, great uh, uh, mileage as far as my, my fuel is concerned. But if I need to go anywhere quick, I need to make a lot of planning. It's just really, really slow. And driving the car means that I've got to maintain momentum whenever I have it. Uh, otherwise, it takes a long time to get it moving again. So I got to 605, and I saw that there was a car coming about a half a mile down the road, and I realized that I've got just enough time to get out in the flow of traffic without this guy running into me. So I pulled on, and then uh, 15 seconds later, blue lights in my rear window. And have you ever had one of those moments where your prayer life just takes a giant leap forward? <laughs> I, I was having one of those moments. And, and the officer came up to me and he said, do you know what you did wrong? I said, no, sir, I don't. What, what did I do wrong? I'm talking about what, what is going on? I wasn't speeding. I couldn't possibly speed. And he said, you rolled through that stop sign. And I went, uh, I did. <laughs> he said, what? And I said, I did. He said, oh, registration, license. Why'd you ride through the stop sign? I said, I'm sorry, I wasn't even thinking. So he's back there checking the computer. And I'm sitting there going, you know what? I'm I'm guilty. I was wrong. I shouldn't have rolled through the stop sign. I'm waiting for him to come up and bring the ticket. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you're going to give me a ticket. Uh, you know, tickets are expensive now. I don't know how much court costs are, but they're somewhere around 150 bucks, I think. And, and there would be a thing for the ticket. I've got to stand in front of a judge. The judge is going to look at me and say, are you guilty or not guilty? I have no choice but to say, I'm guilty. And, you know, so I just did something wrong. And, and now I've got to pay for it. And so five minutes later, the cop comes up to my side window and he said, look, you just need to be more careful. I'm just going to give you a verbal warning. I went, thank you, sir. <laughs> Wound up my window. And, 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 and again, you know, it's, it's the morning. I'm getting ready for breakfast. I'm a pastor. Uh, Scott will tell you, if, you know, if you're a pastor, you're always writing your sermon. It's, just, it's 24 hours a day. There, there's not a time when you're not thinking something about the sermon. 
And so I'm pulling away from the curb and thinking, what did I just learn? Ah, lesson of grace. I received grace. I was guilty. I was unworthy of any consideration. I was totally at the mercy of this highway patrolman. If he was going to write me a ticket, I was going to have to pay for it. And yet I received grace. I didn't do anything. He didn't, give the, he didn't get me off because I had such a great personality. He didn't get me off because I was such a good-looking guy, although some people might debate that. <laughs> it's just his decision to give me a verbal warning. So I will not be judged for having gone through that stop sign. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, and this might shock some of you. Each one of us are going to be judged. Every one of us here is going to be judged. Now, I know that makes a knot in your stomach sometimes. Hang with me on this, okay? I'm going to show you something in Scripture that's very important for us to learn. We will each be judged. Now, we're in our third week of Sanctity for Life Month. Uh, our sermon series is Life is Sacred. On the first uh, sermon, we did God Creates, and we talked about how God values all human life. Uh, so we should value all human life as well. Our second sermon was God Sustains. And in that sermon, we learned that God permeates every facet of our existence, right from before we're formed in the womb. And that we need to be thankful for the gifts that we've been given. The very air that we breathe comes as a gift from our Father. And this is the third sermon. Uh, this is God Judges. Next week, we will do God Redeems. Uh, when we have uh, some guests from CareNet come in and share with us as well. Uh, but I want to talk about God judging today. Uh, so in our passage, we see three sovereign acts of God in these short verses here. Uh, we see divine judgment in verses 11 and 12. We see divine punishment in verses 13 and 14. And then we see divine atonement in verse 15. Uh, now, the context of this is important as well. We are in Revelation. It's the end of the Bible. Uh, the story arc of the Bible is beginning to come to a close. It started when God created everything and made a garden, put a guy in it, and put a girl in it. And uh, they sinned against God and got evicted from the garden. They got ejected from it. And uh, the entire Bible is a story of God bringing redemption to his children and bringing that old creation, which had been tainted by sin, into a new creation. And we're getting close to those moments. We're at the very end. Now, in these last few chapters of Revelation 18, 19, 20, we see seven major events that occur at the end time. So the first one is the return of Christ. We're not going to go over all these. I just want to give you context. The return of Christ, we see the defeat of Satan, we see the binding of Satan, then we see the millennium, a thousand year or, or some indeterminate amount of time uh, where Christ reigns, then we see the final end of Satan, and then the last judgment, the sixth event, that's the one we're going to be concentrating on today, and lastly we will see the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. So, uh, again, we're in the six of seven major events. We're not going to cover them all. We're going to look at divine judgment today, and we're going to start with 11 and 12, the first of our three sovereign acts of God. And so what's happening here is that the glory of the earth and the glory of everything man has created, everything that man has worked for, is beginning to fade rather rapidly. 
Uh, now, John kind of knew this. John is on Patmos. He's on an island he's been exiled to. He is the last of the apostles. All the other apostles have been martyred. It's somewhere, depending on how you look at this, between 70 and 90, 95 AD or so. And John realizes he's the last one. And John, while he's there, gets a peek into heaven. He gets a peek into the throne room. He has a vision. And he spends the entire letter of Revelation trying to explain what he's seen. I love Revelation because I see John sitting there going, I don't know. There was a throne room, I think it looked like a throne room, and there was a sea, and there's a big thing, and there are elders and crowns, and there's fire and cherubim and bowls, and that's what I saw. And he's trying to explain it to us in first century Greek. Uh, So uh, some of these are beyond imagination, but I believe that John had a hint at what was going to happen when he wrote his first epistle in 1 John. He said in chapter 2, verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So I can see John writing in particular this part of Revelation and going, that's what, that's what I was inspired to write before. It's all beginning to fit together. So I th- think John had this in mind. When he writes in verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And we, what we see is we get John's poetic, vivid, fluid imagery here. And we got to look at this closely and understand what John wants us to see because he's painting a picture for us. We see in the center of everything is a throne. Throughout the entire Bible, a throne is a seat of power. It's a seat of authority. It's a seat that everything is focused on. And this is not just any throne. This is a white throne. And you can see a, a radiance to it because it represents absolute purity. It represents perfect holiness. It represents righteousness uh, to a degree that mankind has never seen. And seated on this white throne in the middle of heaven is the king. And now, we know that kings sit on thrones. Again, it's a sign of authority. It's a sign of power. But this isn't just any king. This is the king of all kings. It's the king of kings and the lord of lords, the most powerful entity in the entire universe, the most powerful entity in all of creation. So John wants us to see this. And Daniel had something very similar as the same vision. If we look at his book in chapter 7, starting in verse 9, Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So we have this picture of The heavenly host gathered before the throne of God. And it's majestic and it's awesome and it defies the imagination. It should drive us to our knees. And as they gather before him, Daniel says, the books are open. The books. 
What books are those? We'll get to that in a bit. But the rest of verse 11 says this. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So we have this picture of all of creation. It's crumbling. It's fraying at the edges. If it were a disaster movie, the the skyscrapers would be falling and the highways would be buckling and the sky would look like it's on fire. And everything is just beginning to fall apart in the presence of God. He's so pure. He's so holy. He's so awesome. He's so fierce and so frightening to those who don't know him. Everything flees. Creation flees from him. Now, this this is not an alien picture to us. Even those who know him can't be in his presence, not in, in our present form, not in our physical bodies. Didn't God tell Moses in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You can't exist in my presence. I'm so perfect and so holy that you just fall apart when you come into my presence. All creation flees from him. And what God is doing is he's preparing the stage. He's clearing the stage for the new creation. He's going to restore all things to himself. The story that started in Genesis with decay and sin and death is about to be renewed and restored and redefined. God is saying, we're going to reboot everything. I'm going to make it new. And in the new creation, after the judgment that we're seeing right here, his children, his children will be able to see him face to face. Then John says in verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. I have to be honest with you. There is not scholarly agreement on who the dead is here. Um, But I think John puts it to rest when he says the dead, great and small. I think he's talking about all the dead. And I think he's about to affirm that in the next two Verses. So here's the host of heaven gathered in the throne room, and every person that was ever created standing before the throne of God. Now, I don't know what you think of that, but I think there was incredible anticipation as to what was happening. I think. Nobody had to say anything. But I think that all of creation stands here and goes, this must be a big moment. There must be something huge going on here. And the truth of the matter is that that their destinies for all eternity hinges on what happens in this moment. God assembles everybody and everything he's ever created in front of him and What happens in that moment as there's a hush falls over the crowd. You can almost feel the tension. What's going to happen next? Where am I going to end up? And they open a book. A book. 
And in my mind, I see, I see God opening up this big leather tome, although I'm not sure that's what John was trying to describe here. And creation holds its breath. You know, the Jews believe that God had books that recorded everything that everyone ever did. You can find these in Jewish writings, 4th Ezra, 1st Enoch. They believe that God, now, now I, 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 hold with me on this, okay? But they record every deed that was ever done. They record every intention of the heart that was ever intended. Every word that was spoken. Everything that was done in private that was thought to be done in the darkness. They're all in the books. This is the book that we're talking about. And because everybody has done something in that book that is not holy, that is not pure, nobody's going to survive this. If this is the moment of judgment, nobody is going to live up to the standard of holiness that we see sitting on that throne. Didn't Paul tell us that? All have sinned, all have fallen short, of the glory of God. It's a dark passage, isn't it? Look here in verse 12. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Well, what is this book? Well, we're not quite sure yet, but I like the sound of the book of life a lot better than I like the sound of the book of everything you've ever thought in your entire life. Isaiah kind of talked about that. And we're just, we're just assuming that there's something good about this book of life. Isaiah says in chapter 4, verse 2, as he talks about the end times, in that day, and he, what he's talking about is in that moment where everything gathers in front of God and these books are opened. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. So there's, there's hope here. There's hope in verse 12. But we see in the rest of verse 12, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. All the dead are judged according to what they had done. So divine judgment falls on everyone. But there's something, something different about this book of life. We'll get to it. When the judgment comes, and, and, and we see this, it's a biblical pattern, after judgment comes punishment. So we see divine punishment in verses 13 and 14. 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Now, I don't want to make too much about the ocean here. Uh, this is figurative language. It's apocalyptic literature. But between the sea and death and Hades, that kind of covers, for the Jewish audience, that covers anywhere a dead person could go. So John's trying to say that everything gives up the dead. That all the dead are assembled. The totality is, is, is all-encompassing. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now, John keeps on saying this. Everybody's judged. Everybody's judged according to what they're done. No one measures up. All have sinned. All have fallen short. All have earned condemnation. And then in verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. It's a second death, the lake of fire. Death and Hades are personified. And what is it saying? That death is destroyed. Hades is destroyed. They no longer have the influence that they had before. Uh, now, I, I want to talk to you about this for a second. Because when I read articles about how to preach, they tell me not to talk about hell. It offends people. It's, this is not a good culture to talk about hell. We don't want to turn people off. We don't want to chase them away. Here it is. What we're talking about, brothers and sisters, is the lake of fire. Our, our statement of faith says that we believe in eternal conscious torment. We believe that the lake of fire is a burning fire that John's talking about that the judged people get thrown into and will burn forever. They'll never be consumed, but they will burn forever. It hurts. And if we don't want to offend people, what a, do you think that moment's going to be offensive to them? We're offending people by not telling them about it. There's a lake of fire. It's real. And the condemned get thrown into it. What a, what a dark passage. And it, I, it just gets darker. But there's there's a hope here. See, the hope is in the divine atonement, verse 15. And, and, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. If you're not in the book of life, you go in the fire. If you are in the book of life, you go into eternal blessing in the presence of the Father for the rest of all eternity. Like I said, it's a dark passage, but there's hope, and there's only one hope. There's only one way. The only way to avoid the lake of fire is to have your name written in the book of life. How do we get in the book of life? How do, we, how do we have our name written in there? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the life. I am the word of God. If you want the way to be written in the, per, in the book of life, you have to be in me and me in you. So redemption's available. 
He said, no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, understand what just happened here. All of us are written in the first set of books. All of us have earned condemnation and the lake of fire. But Jesus took our penalty. Jesus atoned for our sins and gave us eternal life, and it's a gift of grace. Now, let me explain what I'm talking about here, because I think it's very difficult for us as human beings to comprehend grace. Deep down inside, I think it's very easy for us to believe I've done something that God liked, I've made a decision that God liked, I've said something that God liked, I've done some process, some sacrament that God liked, so now I'm saved. See, this passage tells us none of us have done anything God likes. You see, I don't think that we're going to understand grace. I don't think we're going to understand the magnitude of God's grace until we understand how deeply condemned we were. And I think when we join that heavenly host and stand before the Father, and those books are opened, nothing has to be recited to us. I think when we see his holiness, I think when we see his purity, I think we're going to know how short we've fallen. And everything we've ever done to offend him will come to mind. And I think we're going to be staring into the abyss at the bottom of which is the lake of fire. And knowing just as surely as I knew I was guilty of going through that stop sign, we will know that we have earned condemnation. And at that point, God will open the second book, the book of life, and look at us, Then look on his son and say, because of what my son has done for you, come into my presence. Then, I think we'll understand grace. I think we'll understand it as a move of a sovereign God. Just because he's God, not because of who we are, who has saved us. Divine judgment's coming. Divine punishment will follow immediately afterwards. It always does. And the only place of our rescue is through divine atonement that we find on the cross of Jesus Christ. Each one of us will be judged. But those who are in Christ Jesus, listen very carefully. Those who are in Christ Jesus will not be judged unto condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I do believe that we will be judged into a deep and eternal gratitude for grace. I think it will be made clear to us at that point. Okay. I like that. You guys like that? Is that good? But that's the end times. I mean, that's not, it's not going to happen today. 
It's not going to happen during this sermon. I, it, I mean, do we really believe that this is imminent? Do we believe that Jesus is going to come back in the twinkling of an eye when everyone cries peace and safety? Do we believe that? Well, well, yeah, I believe that. You know, again, it says in our statement of faith that we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. But we've been taught a lot of things about that. Well, I don't know, got to build the temple first. So they're not building the temple, so it's not going to happen today. Got to reinstitute sacrifice, so they're not doing that. So really not going to happen this year. I'm safe. Okay. And, you know, we can have long talks about this. We can, we can debate over it. Uh, I mean, you know, for as many people we have here, there are probably this many different interpretations of what the end times look like. And I, I enjoy that, and I, I don't think any of us are right. Uh, I, I think we're all going to get there and go, oh, <laughs> I didn't realize that or this. And, and, you know. So what, what is it, how does this impact us today? What does this have to do with the sanctity of life? Well, we've learned a couple things here. And the first thing we should have learned is that there's a judge, brothers and sisters. There is a judge who is holy and pure and sits in sovereign authority over everything ever created. So much sovereign authority and power over it that when everything that is ever created comes into his presence, it begins to flee. So there is a judge. And he's not us. He's not us. And what this means to us is, number one, we can't judge others. We're not qualified to judge anybody. We are just as guilty as everybody else. Now, we know that. We know we shouldn't judge others. Amen? Okay? But we do it. So, I want to challenge you on this, okay? So, as, as you go through your afternoon, understand, you can't judge your neighbor. You can't judge your spouse. You can't judge your parents, whether they were good or bad or whatever. You can't judge them because you're guilty too. I'm guilty too. I can't judge you for judging other people. <laughs> okay, that's easy. I know I'm not supposed to do that. Okay, but you can't judge your enemies. We can't judge Muslims. Plug anything in there you want. We can't pass judgment on them. We can't say, well, they're not going to heaven. You're going to burn in hell. You better do this. You better do that because I'm saved and you're not. When we start seeing the people that we differ with, the people that oppose us, the people that are different than us, when we start seeing them as the mission field instead of the opposition, things will change for all of us. We can't judge anybody because we're not qualified. We're guilty too. We can't demand perfection from anyone because we're not perfect. On our best day, when we've hit all the buttons, when we've got all the attaboys, 
when everybody's on our side and we're feeling pretty good on ourselves, on our most excellent day, we don't measure up to the holiness of God. So we can't demand that somebody else does. All of us are going to stand and watch those books open and be judged by what we've done. And all of us are eligible for the atonement available through Jesus Christ. Now, let me, let me explain this. And this is why we've got to be careful about our judgment. Because anybody who waits until that moment, it's too late. It has to happen here and now. It has to happen here and now. And our job is to be messengers of that gospel. So we can't judge others. Here's the other impact it should have on us. We can't judge ourselves. We can't condemn ourselves. We're not qualified. No matter what good we've done. We can't earn our way into heaven. I think we all get that, amen? No matter what bad we've done. No no matter what horrendous thing we've done. Whatever stumble we've had. It cannot outweigh the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross in paying for our sins. It just doesn't have the weight that his sacrifice has. So we can't judge ourselves. We can't demand perfection from ourselves. I mean, we can't get to that point to where where we we always see as our mistakes, always see as our stumbles and everything. We are to strive for perfection. It's something that we shoot for, but we're not to condemn ourselves when we don't receive it. That's just like saying to God, you know, I, I know that Jesus died for all my sins, but, but you know, that wasn't quite enough. I've got to make this one right. I know that you can't forgive this. So, and, and some of us indulge in self-condemnation. It's not what God has called us to do. We can't judge others, and we can't judge ourselves. We can't expect perfection from others. We can't expect it from ourselves. God has given us a tool to handle that. It's called, it's called repentance, and we're supposed to repent and move on and accept the grace that we've been given. The only criteria for judgment on us will be where we are in Jesus Christ. So I thank God for those, those little reminders of his grace that we get. Keep your eyes open. You get them too. I thank God for sitting with blue lights in my rearview mirror reminding me that God has been far more gracious to me than any state trooper could be and that my call my call is to be a vessel of grace to those around me to be a reflection of the love that God has for you and me and let that pour from us and we leave we leave the judging to him because we're all going to stand there and see those books open. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible revelation that is your son, Jesus Christ, and the payment that he has effected for our sins, Father, and the freedom we have because of that, Lord. We thank you for the love that you, you've expressed towards us, Father. We thank you for those of us that have confessed our sins and, 
and repented and turned towards his righteousness and away from from our own righteousness, Father. I have our names written in the book of life, Father, and they can't be erased from there, Father. We thank you that this is by your hand, by your grace, by your love, by the sacrifice of your son shedding his blood on the cross in payment for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray.